Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this on Monday, May 18th, 2020. And Aaron, since we left folks hanging on our last show in regard to your chronological take on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, could we continue along the road there, please? Phase two is a tricky one because we do a whole lot of bouncing around thanks to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And Jim, I've complained so many mm. times on this show how they never incorporated any of the movie stuff into S.H.I.E.L.D. And now I'm going to sit here and mm. eat crow for this entire segment, okay? So let me put on my bib. Okay. All right, here we go. Uh, after Iron Man 3, you got to jump into TV's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 1 up to Episode 7. You got to stop and watch Thor the Dark World. And then as soon as okay. Thor the Dark World is over, you got to go right back to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. again. And you pick up from episode 8 through 16, not quite the end of the season. You got to stop again. And then episode 16 of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. came out April 1st of 2014. Just three days later, Captain America, the Winter Soldier takes place. And we all know some things were revealed, spoiler-wise, Hail Hydra, about uh, things in, in uh, The Winter Soldier. As soon as uh, Winter Soldier gets done, you go right back into S.H.I.E.L.D. once again, and you wrap up Season 1 from se uh, Episode 17, on, uh, which took place on April 8th, and then you, you go all the way through to the end of the season there. And then uh, to help get us all the way to the end of phase two you do a double shot of guardians of the galaxy now this is my one point that might be controversial with some that's not how they mm -hmm. came out it would normally go guardians of the galaxy avengers age of ultron and then guardians of the galaxy volume two but mm -hmm. there's no reason why you can't do a guardians of the galaxy double feature there's nothing in the timeline that is dependent upon telling age of ultron first so I do a double feature there with Guardians of the Galaxy. I think it's quite righteous that way. And the reason I do that is because when you get to uh, the third phase, you've got so much of the Netflix series to slog through because all of that stuff takes place after Age of Ultron and it all wraps up before we get to Infinity War. So that's like all of phase three is really a, a lot of the Defenders getting and, and you know those are all series not movies so it's a much much longer slog in the third phase if you include the netflix stuff but phase two rather concise with only the one season of agents of shield broken up amongst that so and that was where marvel did a really good job of connecting tv to mcu and then uh, as you see when we get on to phase three they kind of went yeah we don't need to do so much of that anymore it's fine yeah, it just makes me think i really do have to go back and do a deeper dive on the Defenders. Do they they really do that much tying into the films? Or? They really don't. They do mention uh, the New York event a few times in the first mm -hmm. season. And I think mm -hmm. that there is a mention of a city falling through the air, which would be the events of Age of Ultron. But I can't okay. remember what season it was because you, you start off with Daredevil and then you jump straight to Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. And somewhere mm -hmm. in the first season of one of those three, uh, I know they mentioned the the New York event in Daredevil season one, the Sokovia 
Accords, uh, the events of yeah, Sokovia Mm -hmm. take place in Age of Ultron, and I don't know which of the three mentioned that. Okay, got it. If you end up airing the Netflix stuff too early, they end up becoming premonitions of the future and going, a city's going to fall in the next six months. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you do have to kind of keep the Netflix stuff after Age of Ultron, which is squarely in the third of the uh, phases of the MCU. Okay, well, cool. Though you did mention Thor The Dark World, which I don't know if you saw, Disney is reviving... The Wonderful World of Disney, not the anthology show, the the movie night that they used to do. And they're doing four of them. And okay. the second one is actually on Wednesday, May 27th. And it's Thor the, the Dark World, which perfectly serviceable. I think the problem is when you sit that one side by side now with Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok, it looks kind of small and gray. The reason that Disney is putting on Thor The Dark World is because that's at the in the 8 to 10 slot, but from the 10 to 11 slot is uh, the debut of season 7 of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the 7th and last. It's been since August of last year. Do, do you remember much of anything about season 6 of, of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? No, I don't remember what I had for dinner, and I'm still chewing right now. Um, I've, I've got the memory of a goldfish. When season six came to a close, Agent Coulson was now a live model decoy, and the team has found themselves stranded some 90 years in the past, which is obviously going to impact your timeline, but they're in New York City circa 1931. Mm-hmm. There's a trailer over at ABC.com. If you want to check it out, they talk about that. It's their final mission, and they have to change the past in order to save the future. And there's this exchange between Coulson and Daisy where Coulson says the only way to save S.H.I.E.L.D. is to save Hydra, which Mm. kind of, well, whatever, it's 1931. Didn't they, the idea was that that all of the Hydra agents, in, in much the same way of all of the former Nazis who joined the space program. Right, yeah. Wasn't it post-World War II? Okay, yeah. now I'm confused. Yeah, because it would have to be then before the, the Second World War ended if they're in the 30s, right? Because yeah. World War II was in the 40s. So goodness help us all if S.H.I.E.L.D. is responsible for World War II. Okay, well, time to break out the whiteboard, folks. Oh, yeah. um, we were just talking about Daisy, uh, who's played by Chloe Bennett. She popped up on Twitter earlier today. There's, there's a rumor making the rounds that says that, in effect, that once Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., ends its run on ABC uh, this summer that Marvel Studios is supposedly looking to have Bennett reprise her role as Quake in a live-action Secret Warrior show that's supposedly already in development for Disney+. And Chloe, to her credit, hopped online and was quick to squash this rumor. It's just, I wish it were true, but it isn't. I haven't heard anything about this besides what's on Twitter already. Given the way Marvel Studios operates, then people get folded in and out of things. I mean, Chloe actually has been doing the voice of Quake and Daisy for the Secret Warrior animated series. So she's still in-house. It's just that this other thing, this live-action thing, doesn't seem to exist yet. Mm, Okay. 
We would just talk about Taika Waititi uh, a few minutes ago, uh, who has already been signed to do a follow-up to Thor Ragnarok, and that's Thor Love and Thunder. Christian Bale was supposedly meeting with uh, Marvel Studios in regard to this project. But again, it was supposedly veiled in secrecy, which evidently Tessa Thompson, again, through social media, basically blew out of the water. Tessa, who, of course, you know, plays Valkyrie in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, confirmed not only that has Christian Bale been cast in Thor Love and Thunder, but he's also playing that film's villain. Now, Thor Love and Thunder is still supposed to sh- be shooting this August in Australia. And that was something that got announced late last fall, early this winter. But between the wildfires that country has been battling and, and now COVID-19, whether this Taika Waititi movie will actually be able to stick with that production start uh, gotten a trifle shaky. Now, now, mind you, just today, the Los Angeles Times reported that while Australia's borders remain closed to international filming, the country has opened up its domestic production. There's a, a long-running Australian soap opera called Neighbors, which uh, resumed production uh, this month. Now, Thor Love and Thunder still has the same release date. So it's February 11th, 2022. They're still locked in to that being shot in Australia at the Fox Studio Complex in Sydney. And Marvel really doesn't want to have to move this production because by agreeing to shoot this movie at that particular facility, they got over $16 million subsidy from the Australian federal government and state government of New South Wales. So it's like they'd really want to hang on to that dough. But Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, which began shooting in February of this year, shut down production on March 13th. And that movie has to go back into production, wrap before Thor Love and Thunder can begin shooting. Sure. Was there anything after that, after Shang-Chi gets wrapped up? Was there a movie in line between that and Thor that needs to go absolutely perfectly in order for everything to align? Funny you should mention that. Black Panther 2 is supposed to shoot on March 1st, 2021 in this exact same facility. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is supposed to be shot in Georgia at the Pinewood Atlanta Studios. They posted a February 1st, 2021 start date. The, the Pinewood facility down in, in Atlanta, it's enormous. I mean, huge, huge, mothersly huge sound stages. Something like Guardians is going to take up a lot of room, especially when you take into consideration that even before they can begin shooting the third film in, in that series, they need to spend, I, I've been told, as much as two days or possibly as long as a week to shoot all of the media that has to be presented inside of Disney's Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind attraction, which that project now for Epcot is now months behind schedule, you know, because of the work stoppage. I I would almost expect Disney to try to somehow claim synergy and have them film Guardians Mm -hmm. 3 in the actual space of Cosmic Rewind 
and be like, it'll be great because it'll show up in the movie and then people will go and realize that we shot the whole damn thing in the queue, <laughs> you know, and they can marvel and go, look at all the props. And it's not actually props. It's just the damn queue. <laughs> okay. For those of you listening at Marvel Studios, again, the check goes to Aaron Adams. That's a brilliant idea. Really? Well, anyway, to get back to a topic we touched on, I think, on our last episode, there was that story out there about John Krasinski meeting with Kevin Feige about possibly playing Reed Richards from the Fantastic Four right. in an upcoming Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. And, and you've gone to the gas station to get more fuel to throw on that fire. Well, yeah, yeah, yes. Well, first of all, there's, there's this gentleman, his Twitter handle is Roger Wardell. The thing about Roger is... He's been scarily accurate about incredibly weird things for when it comes to the Marvel movies. I mean, for example, he was the guy out ahead of Endgame who talked about how Thor would be would be packing a gut when we saw him next. Or likewise, that there was going to be a scene where Captain America actually said, Hail Hydra. He even got Stan Lee's cameo correct that it was going to be set back in the 1970s and managed to talk about how Robert Redford would be coming back to reprise the character that he'd done from Captain America Winter Soldier as part of Endgame. And this, uh, coupled with some of the info he shared about Black Widow that's turned out to be on the money and some of the stuff that he's he's already shared about Eternals that, that has you know bubbled up from other things. This is somebody who, if he's not a Marvel insider, he's pretty well tied into somebody at the company. I think it's Kevin's wife, Caitlin. You know, they they, uh, go to a dinner party. Mm -hmm. Kevin has a couple of drinks, says something not super polite. Caitlin gets upset on the way home, tweets out Fat Thor rumor. Next day, Feige wakes up like, what the hell? Someone leaked this information. She's like, oh, it must have been from... uh, when you were drunk last night. He's like, I don't remember saying anything about Fat Thor to anybody last night. Well, yeah, that's what happens when you drink. You forget stuff. Hmm, interesting. It's her little way of getting back at him, keeping a little leash on him. Oh, talked about burnt meatloaf, huh? Oh, I got a little tidbit for you. Thanos wins an Infinity War. Wow. That's a very George and Kellyanne Conway situation <laughs> you've described there. I'm, I think we'll just leave that there for a while. Okay. So what Mr. Waddell is basically saying is that on the heels of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Badness, what we should really expect to see happen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is them to lean heavily into the idea of multiverses, which we've all seen 2018 Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we, we get that there are multiple existence and that sort of thing. So does that mean we get Spider-Ham into the MCU? Come on, I, let us get a I Spider-Ham so. cameo in the next MCU movie. Oh, God, I would actually, if if Spider-Ham were to appear in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse mm-hmm. of Madness for any reason whatsoever, I will have wished mm-hmm. I had worn Depends to the theater that evening. Because I will have <laughs> utilized the, as if I were wearing them. I will have just... <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, supposedly to sort of deal with the whole continuity issue and and to basically give Kevin Feige and company the opportunity to hit the reset button, John Krasinski's take on Reed Richards, he's not going to be from our Earth. He's he's going to be from Earth 1610, which is what we consider the ultimate 
Marvel Universe now? Yes. So this was started in 2000 uh, with the Ultimate Spider-Man line. A lot of it was done just sort of to clear up continuities or... Well, they wanted a new entry point because there had been so much of, uh, oh, the Green Goblin wants to kill Spider-Man. Oh, the Green Goblin's dead. Oh, he's back. Oh, he's dead. Oh, he's back. Oh, he's dead. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's back. Now Norman Osborn has been alive 32 different times in the MCU. Mm -hmm. And like legitimately... Like he is back today, currently today as we speak, and he has died dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So they just wanted a fresh start where they could say we've had some some home runs with our storytelling. We've had some strikeouts. Let's just retell the home runs and see if we can turn those home runs into grand slams, which would be even better. And uh, let's just throw away the strikeouts. And so they did a lot of retelling. And I got to tell you, one thing that they did in the beginning, the Avengers were called the Ultimates. And everybody thought that there's no way that Thor is the Norse god of thunder. Just no way. Mm -hmm. So they all assumed throughout the entire first year that he was just a very large drunkard. And so throughout most of it, you know, Thor was just tipping back beers. And uh, it wasn't till like the very end when he whips out some lightning and everyone kind of turns their head like, oh, he really is the God of Thunder. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea to make him just a big drunkard throughout the entire first arc and nobody believing his identity was really a lot of fun to play with until he had to, you know, really pull out the, the thunder for the storyline. Uh, the Ultimates was the Avengers told from a, a modern day take. Spider-Man line ran for several years and they actually killed off the Peter Parker in the Ultimates. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and that made room for Miles Morales to come on the scene mm. as the new Spider-Man. Uh Miles was famously mm. popular. He represented a underrepresented community. And so to have that addition, uh, addition for the Hispanic community it was like half Hispanic, half black. But, you know, to mm. to embrace more culture than than just Caucasian was a, a wonderful thing. And everybody was like, yeah, and he's Spider-Man to boot. Let's rock it. And Miles was a great addition. Mm. It was a treat, a smorgasbord of all of your all of the greatest hits. You, you know when you see the, the monkeys, the member of the monkeys on at like 2 o'clock in the morning and they're pitching the greatest hits CDs? It's kind of like that, to be honest. It really is. It's just like, you remember the good old days when this story rocked your world? Well, now we put a fresh new spin on it and you're gonna love it. And it, it really was like that because they played with your expectations a lot. A lot. They knew that you knew what was supposed to happen, so it didn't happen the way that you thought it would, and it always put a little bend in your mind like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. That was amazing. So yeah, fun read, fun read well, for fans. Now, we've got this crucial film coming that, that introduces this concept to the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which of course is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Bantis, which as we mentioned just on the last show, Sam Raimi rather casually admitted, oh yeah, I'm, admit, I'm directing that. Supposedly what's on the table for Multiverse of Bantis is that because it's the multiverse, you can do some fun things you know you can for example bring back toby as your spider-man if you you so choose which it's supposedly being talked about right likewise that there has been a number of stories out there about the marvel zombie Mm -hmm. universe and that's how you're going to bring him back that evidently they've had conversations with both chris evans and robert downey jr about 
can you come back for a day? <laughs> you know, can you, because we're doing the Marvel zombie stuff and wouldn't it be cool if. My wife and I just recently mm. watched a Family Guy episode where uh, Stewie created Stewie, who did all of his grunt mm -hmm. work, but Stewie was rather stupid. So he's like, I made a stool in the tub, but I covered it up real good on huh, Stewie. And I think that they should bring back Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. He is the complete opposite of Tony Stark. Like they need to find uh, only Tony Stark can solve this problem. And they travel across the multiverse looking for Tony Stark. And he's, hey, I'm Tony Stark. You want to go for a car ride? <laughs> <laughs> no wow. wrong stark and they just bug out of that universe real quick like they were never there and uh i think that would be hilarious but anyway no 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 that, that's it that, i mean what's it, the that, point that, of that, bringing back the original stark i mean it seems so pointless it's like rehashing something that has been hashed to hash 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 hash, 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 hash. It, no, no point mm -hmm. he's done it he's played it it's like he's lived it i mean he was mm -hmm. given the role because they thought he was the closest thing to like a real Tony Stark. Then he brought all of himself to the role and did it. So yeah, what's the point of bringing him back unless he's got a fresh new angle that's worth coming back for? Actually, to go over to DC real quick. Did you ever see Flash, Jim, with all, all the seasons of Flash and how they handled Dr. Wells? He turns out to be a bad guy in season one and they kill him off in season two. He's like super bubbly and friendly but like a totally different personality it's like every season this actor got to play a different version of the same character and they were all wonderful hmm. part of the joy was which new version of this guy are we gonna get and he's a great fun actor to watch so yeah just watch flash just for the the one the doctor character that spoiler is a bad guy in season one do that with tony stark hmm. That's what I'm okay. saying. Let him have fun with the role. Let him let him go nuts with it in directions we cannot anticipate. Well, speaking of things that we could not anticipate, when we get back, we're going to talk about a, a pivotal moment in Marvel history that just over the past couple of days learned something very, very interesting about. You had mentioned that Neil Gaiman is back with something very, very cool. Yeah, so in the very near future, we've got an overdose of Sandman on the way because they have got uh, an audible thing coming in the near future. And they have got an amazing cast lined up. First, Neil Gaiman is going to be playing the narrator, which is the probably the most important thing because nobody reads Neil's work like Neil reads Neil's work. Mm-hmm. So to have him narrating is just the most perfect starting place because in, in Neil, we trust in his storytelling mm -hmm. ability. Now, to, because we've already spoken about Thor Dark World twice, let's throw in the fact that Kat Dennings is going to be playing Death. Oh, nice. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the lead character, I mean, because this is Sandman, so let's not mm -hmm. hold too long on that. James McAvoy. Our current Professor Xavier is uh, hmm. going to be playing Morpheus. And bravo for that, because I'm a, I'm a fan for James McAvoy. We've mm -hmm. also got Andy Serkis playing Matthew the Raven. Michael Sheen is going to be playing Lucifer. B.B. Huh. Uh, Newworth mm -hmm. is going to be playing the Siamese cat. And anything with B.B. Newworth 
is a sign of class, elegance, and quality. And uh, nobody can uh, disagree with that statement, right, Jim? I got nothing. I mean, no, B.B. Newworth is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Taryn Egerton, who's been making a name for himself rather recently, can be playing John Constantine, which if you remember the movie with uh, Keanu Reeves back in the day, Constantine, that's that character. Mm-hmm. And then Riz Ahmed is going to be playing the Corinthian. And I want to tell you, Jim, a little thing about the Corinthian, that this is why he gives people nightmares, That pe- the people that read Sandman, is mm-hmm. uh, he wears sunglasses. When he takes them off, you see that instead of eyes, there are two little mouths in his eyes with super sharp teeth. And it is the creepiest image ever. And uh, yeah, so it's it's one of those characters who, with a pair of sunglasses, looks perfectly normal and is perfectly charming. But if he lowers his sunglasses just a bit, the last thing you see will be one of the most horrifying things you could possibly imagine. And uh, so just knowing that the Corinthian will be involved uh, gives me great, great joy. There's a huge, huge, wonderful cast. And oh, I got, also got to say, uh, for Doctor Who fans, Arthur Darvel will be playing none other than William Shakespeare. We also will have Desire and Despair and a bunch of other wonderful... John Johns, the Mm -hmm. Martian Manhunter, is going to be in the story. Mm -hmm. There's an incredibly long cast that goes well beyond the the little bit that I've mentioned, but it's coming out on July 15th on Audible. They're not paying us to talk about it. They should be talking, uh, paying us to talk about it because I rave too much in favor of mm-hmm. uh, Sandman and Neil Gaiman, but it's well worth it. Wow, that that's an amazing cast. Holy, I mean, normally you can counter one or two name performers and then some, some you know, genuinely talented... Voice actors supporting. who are known in the voice world, you know, but not everyday <laughs> household names. And those are all stars that you see on big screens and little screens and screens of every yeah. size. Yeah. Stars galore. Mm -hmm. Very excited for that to come. Okay. On an an earlier Marvelous Disney, uh, Aaron and I talked about uh, Bob Iger's memoir, Ride of a Lifetime, Lessons Learned from 15 Years as a CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Uh, He's looking back on on spending $4 billion to acquire Marvel Entertainment back in August of 2009. There's a section of the book that reads, This wasn't the first time Marvel had been on Disney's radar. Early in my time working for Michael, and that's Michael Eisner, I attended a staff lunch where he floated the idea of acquiring uh, Marvel Entertainment. A handful of the executives around the table objected. What they said basically was that Marvel was too edgy. I would tarnish the Disney brand. Uh, There was an assumption at the time eternally and among members of the board that Disney was this single monolithic brand and that all of our businesses existed under the Disney umbrella. And Bob closes up by saying that I sense that Michael knew better, but any negative reaction to the brand or suggestion that it wasn't well-managed, he took personally. So the only problem with the story is we don't have a time frame. It was great that the story was was out there. Nikki Fink, uh, who was in charge of Deadline Hollywood, just after Disney uh, acquired Marvel, actually shared this tidbit that back in the 1990s, when Michael Eisner ran Disney and Bob Iger was his number two, the moguls had an on-again, off-again conversation about acquiring Marvel. But there was never any attempt at a negotiation because the brand didn't seem Disney. So again, we get independent confirmation 
that this actually went on, but not the when. And it was only just this week where Jermaine Lissier, uh, in an article for Gizmodo, it's this article about Gargoyles, the animated series that Disney did as part of its Disney Afternoon lineup. Show debuted in September of 94. Jermaine is interviewing Greg Weissman. He's the gentleman who created Gargoyles and got him to share this story, which says, I was at a meeting with Michael Eisner when he wanted to buy Marvel Comics. This was in the mid-1990s, and he was talked out of it at this meeting, which is still widely ironic to me. And so he said, well, Warner Brothers has DC Comics. We need to have an action universe like DC or Marvel. And so he turns to me and says, could we use Gargoyles as the launching pad for a Disney action universe? And I said, yes. And so after this meeting with Eisner, Weissman and his team begin to develop all of these spin-offs and backdoor pilots, like the New Olympians and the Pendragon episode, and others that we put into the second season. So there we go. All right, second season of Gargoyles. That begins running in September of 1995. But before these shows can be animated, they have to be written. So that means this meeting, when Eisner was talking about you know, we should make a run at Marvel, had to happen in either the f- late fall, early winter of 94, or the early winter of, of 95. You know, between 1993 and 1996, the bottom basically falls out of the comic book and trading card business. And Marvel was ridiculously financially overextended at this point. Then they were circling the, circling the bull. And Eisner, given who he was and, you know, all of the other people he knew in the entertainment community, would have known about this. The other thing that, frankly, would have held Disney back was the fact that by this point, the Marvel film rights and television rights were scattered to the four winds. I mean, I want to say by this point, Fox has the rights to the X-Men. Well, they also had a Fantastic Four as well. That's right. And uh, Universal's got Hulk and Namor, and Columbia's already got Spider-Man. And Blade came out in 1998, which was a few years after that. Was that New Line, I want to say? I think it was, and I can't recall off the top of my head, but that was like one of the first times where a Marvel movie made its money when it was actually serious. Like, I remember yep. the yep. 70s TV Spider-Man series that was short-lived, and I remember the old mm-hmm. made-for-TV Captain America uh, stuff that was done. And all of that mm-hmm. was so still cartoony and spandexy. And then Blade was, like, one of the very first real-world Marvel things where it was tried to take itself a bit more seriously, and it was adult, and it was graphic and, and violent, and they really didn't think it was going to do anything. Why not? Throw it to the wind, see what happens. And it suddenly grew wings and flew and created a trilogy, and they went, oh, there's money in movies. That's the crucial thing to point out, because December of 1998, Toy Biz and Marvel Entertainment merge, and that they're able to sort of right the ship financially, and the very thing that Aaron's talking about. This is, you know, the the inciting event of the merger coupled with the the success of a Blade, and that sets them on the path of setting up Marvel Studios. Mind you, it takes them a couple of years to line up the financing, right? I want to say it's it's not till 2006 or thereabouts that that they have the financing and that 10-picture plan. Right. And that's always fascinating to read because it's like, and we're going to do a Nick Fury movie. 
it's nice to have plans because otherwise, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, if you didn't have a plan, you you wouldn't have this wonderfully woven tapestry that is our MCU. So even though mm-hmm. things, you know, a few threads may not be where they were originally planned to go, the overall tapestry mm-hmm. came out pretty darn nice. No, 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 it did. It did. So we have Michael Eisner. He steps down at the head of the Walt Disney Company in September of 2005. March of 2007, Michael, as an individual, buys Topps trading cards. Again, the business he was told was in the toilet back in, in you know, 94 thereabouts. Mm-hmm. He buys Topps outright for $385 million. And over the past 13 years or so has been building that into yet another success. But. So here's the thing that people don't know about Michael Eisner is apparently his mother threw out his comic book collection and his baseball card collection, and he's had a chip on his shoulder ever since. So he's been looking to regain wow. his comics and his cards. Anyway, I, you know what? I'm just going to buy the whole damn company. Give them to me. Was that what happened? Couldn't you get a lot of <laughs> therapy for $385 million? I mean, uh. Honestly, I sense that you're not wrong. I think that when he didn't go after Marvel, it kind of chewed at him. And and perhaps that's with behind the tops thing. The fact that they didn't go after it. And then the Islands of Adventure project gets announced. And here's Universal just down the road with their Marvel superhero island with the characters that you could have owned. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, folks, I, I once spent an afternoon wandering around Marvel Superhero Island at Universal's Islands Adventure and taking pictures of every image of Marvel, the characters there that I could find. Because the idea was we were going to try to build a definitive list of that master licensing agreement. It's always been this question of, okay, which characters can't be in the Disney parks because they're in the Marvel licensing agreement? The other day I was going through my phone and I found all of these photos. Starting today, the the day that this show goes live, if you go to the Jim Hill Media Twitter feed, every day we're going to put up a picture that I took during that trip. Basically, folks, what we're going to do here is crowdsource a list, of a definitive list of, of these characters. We're going to put an image each day. We're asking for your help in identifying all of the characters in these images. And what we'll do is we'll build this list and, you know, eventually when we get an end product, we'll make it available to the listeners of the Marvelous Disney podcast. So at least we have, you know, something to reference. I have to admit, Aaron, I am just fascinated by the notion of, all right, if we work in the math here correctly, you know, Michael Eisner is talking with people at the company in, has to be late 1994, at the absolute latest, early 1995 about Disney possibly buying Marvel. And meanwhile, we have Universal uh, signs the master licensing agreement in March of 1994, but in this very small window of time. So you got to wonder what would have happened if, say, Universal had waited a couple of months to sign that deal. Because remember, you know, they, they only went after the Marvel characters because they lost the rights to the DC characters. And in fact, some point, go over to Theme Park University. I want to say they have a six-part series that shows virtually all the concept art for back when, instead of Islands of Adventure, this park was called Tooniversal Studios. Uh-huh. And it was a celebration, basically, of all of the Warner Brothers IP 
But as you entered the park, you know, and, and came to the central lagoon, to the left was Metropolis. To the right was Gotham City. And you in each, you know, each of these lands had four and five superhero and Batman inspired ride experiences and attractions and shows. Cool. But again, Universal and Warner Brothers had a uh, a falling out. Uh, basically, what Warner Brothers wanted from Universal up front before they began building the park is that they wanted a one-time $40 million fee for not just the theme park rights to the DC characters, but to the Warner Brothers characters, the Looney Tunes. Also, relatively new series at that time, the Acme Acres, the Tiny Tunes. Uh-huh. And the folks at Universal are like, wait a minute, no, no, we're all going to make money off of this. You're going to get money out of of you know the merch that's sold and you know all that. And it's like, why would we have to give you $40 million up front? They dug in their heels and they lost the deal because Warner Brothers was like, look, this is a token of good faith. This is, a, and, and what are the point? It's not $40 million a year. It's $40 million for the, the lifetime, you know, right. theme park rights. And they said no. So they, Marvel was actually plan B. They, they scrambled and, and got this deal set up with Marvel. So, you know, you got to wonder if the time had slid, what would have happened there? I've actually got a really good theory about that. And I, I think we should almost mm-hmm. do an entire show based on this one theory. Uh, back okay. in the day, Chris Claremont, who wrote mm-hmm. a lot of the X-Men, like Phoenix Saga and all that, he wanted mm-hmm. originally to have Bob Hoskins play Wolverine. Really? Yeah. Yeah, let that simmer for a second. Because Wolverine was always drawn as a shorter stature, uh, shorter and wider character. Mm-hmm. And Bob Hoskins had that stocky thing where, like, if he were to t- take off his shirt, he would be like almost that 50s style manly man, barrel chested. You know what I mean? It's it's mm-hmm. not doesn't have to be ripped where you see every individual ab. You can still look muscular. Mm-hmm with that big, huge, wide chest and, and still him being like a shorter guy. And, you know, he was always known for chewing on a cigar every now and again, wasn't he? So he just mm-hmm. kind of fit that look. Give him some wild hair up the sides and, you know, cut him some mutton chops and let him go to town. And and so Bob still, would would he have been alive at that time, like around 94? Yeah, no, he was still with us at that point. See, now, oh. now what we have to do is we have to track down, like, if anyone had any plans for anything going on at that time, because remember James Cameron had a Spider-Man thing that, that never he happened. Did. And, and, and we just have to look at all the things that were undeveloped at that time and, and kind of put together a Bob Hoskins as Wolverine leading the X-Men cast and then a James Cameron helmed Spider-Man thing and take a look at what the MCU could have looked like if it started under those conditions. That would well, be crazy. Okay. Okay, and let, let me just throw one last thing on the pile for sure. the Disney fans out there. So, okay, so Bob Hoskins as Wolverine, which would have been cool. I, 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 I mean, I I so enjoyed his work in Who Framed Roger Rabbit that right. that, that I would have just be intrigued to see him with the claws and and the bright yellow outfit. But yeah, there was an interview just recently with Eddie Murphy. Uh huh. And it turns out Eddie Murphy was among the very first people 
who got offered, who framed Roger Rabbit, he would have played the Eddie Valiant role, which eventually went to Bob Hoskins. Oh. And what he talked about was he read the script, and it was one of these things where it's like, I couldn't figure out how they were going to do it. I mean, I, I loved what I was reading, but I couldn't figure out how, to, out how they were doing it. And so, 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 so his eternal regret, he turned it down. And it's, it's a, you know, out of all the films, you know, I got offered it, it, over the course of my career, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was the one that still gnaws at me. You know, that, that I, I, you know, I, I could have done, I could have been part of the, this amazing movie that people to this day still talk about you know it's the saddest thing about that is that it was never going to be his job to figure out how to do it it was the director's job to figure out how to do it and if he needed to he could explain it to eddie when he was on the set but to read the script and go i just don't understand how the camera captures the light so therefore i can't be in the picture i just no come on have a leap of faith and go for it Sometimes you're sitting there and you're reading something and, you know, just... That's all the more reason reason. to say yes, just to figure out how in the heck they're going to pull something off. I think that would be the intrigue button that pulls you forward, not pushes you away. But again, you have to also remember that that this is Eddie Murphy, the gentleman who made Pluto Nash. So it's just, you know. Were there any cartoons in that? If if there were cartoon characters in that, then I can understand staying far the hell away from anything with animation. uh, I get that. I get that. All right, folks. So for now, if you can head over to Twitter, uh, the Jim Hill Media Twitter feed there, we'd love your help with uh, chasing down these characters because we'd love to build this list. But in between that, if you want to head over and check out the other podcasts we have here, uh, we have Disney Dish with Lentesta. We have Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, The Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z, and I Want That with Shelley Viodolid. Uh, if you get over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be helpful. And as I mentioned, uh, you can find us on Twitter and, uh, by the way, Instagram at Jim Hill Media and over at Facebook, Jim Hill Media News. Aaron and I will be back with a brand new show in two weeks' time. Till then, thanks for listening, folks, and we'll be back soon.